0: Welcome to a brand new episode.
1: Mike Driscoll, The Python Show.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Python podcast. Thank God. <laughs> Let me start over. Hello, and welcome to The Python Show with Mike Driscoll. Today, we welcome Anthony Shaw as our guest for today's show. Welcome, welcome. Hey everybody. Yeah, thanks for coming. Um I always like to start out my show by asking our guests to just tell us a little bit about uh, your journey to Python and what you like about programming.
1: Yeah, sure. So I my journey to Python um came later I guess in my well, I mean maybe in the middle of my career, but it came later in my yeah. career. <laughs> I didn't start with Python. I started with other languages. Um C, C++, uh, PHP, um java pretty much anything other than python um and then i just kind of came across it once uh wanting to contribute to a library called apache libcloud uh which is like a cloud okay. abstraction library um and i got stuck in a hotel uh when i was traveling um mm-hmm. because i got like an ear infection and i couldn't fly onto the next mm-hmm. destination so i had to stay where i was for a few days and mm-hmm. uh, so I decided to sit uh, in the hotel room with not much else to do, um, and watch some courses and learn Python. Uh, so yeah, mm-hmm. that's how I ended up doing doing Python. I think that was 2015. I think that was that's um, cool. so about eight years ago. Yeah, um, and contributed a bunch to that project over the years, and and then tried to build up on my Python skills. Um, yeah, so my journey to programming mm-hmm. it was kind of a lot, a lot earlier. So when I was a kid um really uh, hated school <laughs> so um <laughs> yeah yeah so i well had keen interest in other things um mm-hmm. and working on my computer was one of those um and i would take anything people could find it was a lot harder in the the 90s and the early 2000s to yeah. get access to software and to learn things um you couldn't just browse the internet and download all this cool open source stuff um Mm. so people would give me compilers that uh in a box you know with all the floppy disks and stuff like that that they didn't need anymore and and giving me books and um when I was 13 14 I had a a paper round delivering newspapers and Mm -hmm. quite a lot of the money that i would made on my paper round, I'd spend in like the bookstore um buying programming books yeah (laughs) which is (laughs) Maybe a bit unusual, but um, yeah, that's a great. That was a great way to learn. Like you could go and buy these huge, big, thick books and mm-hmm. sit. I remember them. Sit and read an entire language in a, um, you know, in a few weeks, or at least the bits of the language the author wants you to know about. So
0: yeah, yeah. I, I used to. I feel like I, for a while in my college years, I was collecting uh, programming books, and they're all. You know, 900-page books, it seemed like.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was a second-hand computer bookshop in uh, in a town where I ended up going to university uh, in mm-hmm. the UK. Um, and it was like a second-hand IT bookshop, which is really niche. Um, yeah. And sadly, it closed down. But that was a really good resource because those books were expensive. Um, they are. So, you know, you could just go in there and pick up um, a whole bunch of things for... Next to nothing, um, and go through yeah. them and then and then go and give them back. It was almost like a library, but I always found I did go to the libraries um where when I was at high school and they didn't really have much or, or no. if they did, if it was really out of date. So it's kind of like, Oh, I can learn Java one point three, but um yeah, it's not yeah. much use.
0: I usually see the dummies books thing, that's about the the extent of libraries typically. I don't find those i think they're a good way to explain stuff like microsoft word but not so much for explaining a programming language
1: yeah it's a good brand um like it's say it's a nice idea and it's very approachable um mm-hmm. but yeah there was that in 21 days um series yeah um, like learn c++ in 21 days uh i really enjoyed that book in particular c++ one and that mm-hmm. kind of focused more on um objects and inheritance and uh class design and stuff like that rather than a lot of the sort of low level c plus plus stuff um and cool. definitely a lot of what was in there when i learned that that was 20 plus years ago um has completely changed anyway c plus plus has changed yeah. dr- drastically since then
0: yeah i i was working for a company a few years ago and there was they're using C plus plus, and it was on, I think, version seventeen or something. And I was like, "Wow, I didn't realize so many versions had been released in the last few years." So it's it's cool to see it. It's it still has accelerated development going on with it.
1: Yeah, I don't understand the versioning. It go, it went from seventeen to twenty, and I don't know what mm-hmm. happened to eighteen and nineteen. <laughs> I don't follow it closely enough. But yeah, uh, at the moment you're either on seventeen or twenty. They're the they're the two options. So huh.
0: I wonder if they got forked in some weird way. Kind yeah. of like Python 2 and 3 or something. Yeah, possibly. Anyway, uh, moving on. Uh, what are your favorite Python packages or modules?
1: Um, so I like, uh, I really like testing. Um, mm-hmm. So when I'm working on an application um, or I'm publishing a package or developing a package, um, kind of getting that, sort of stability in the code and also like really kind of testing it out and working out different behaviors and trying to make it as Mm -hmm. robust as possible um I will spend a lot of time uh if I can trying to automate the testing and trying to introduce testing so uh, from that perspective PyTest is my favorite testing library I guess um got into projects that have used unit test and have rewritten the tests in pytest because it just ends up being so frustrating um yeah. and just so, so much extra code um but yeah i love love pytest um mm-hmm. and then different pytest extensions as well i try not to do use too many because pytest is moving quite quickly at the moment um yeah. they kind of went f- maybe similar to c-, c++ but they you know went version <laughs> 3 four, five, i think we're on 6 now um mm-hmm. and not that many breaking changes, but there, there are still some. Um, and if you relied on tons of PyTest extensions, it just makes your life uh, a bit a bit harder. So, yeah, yeah. no, I love uh, using PyTest, and um, yeah, building up, trying to get as much testing as I can into projects and packages, um, and automating mm-hmm. that because um, pretty much everything I do is open source. Um, yeah. And I want people to contribute to those projects um, if they're using them and they find a bug and they want to submit a pull request. Um, and I can't manually test every single pull request that comes into my projects. Um, you know, I will give it a bit of a smoke test and have a look at the code and do code reviews and stuff, but like, I can't test every scenario for regressions. Um, so if I can get as many tests as possible, and then that's, that's kind of my ideal.
0: So do to use a coverage tool to help you figure that out, or
1: yeah, um, I use one of the online ones. Um, so I use the the coverage package um, with pytest, um, and then that submits a report online um, gotcha. to yeah to to the coverage portal, and then you can see which parts are not covered. I can mainly use that so that if people contribute big um, patches or features then Mm -hmm. it tells me in the pull request which parts have they not tested or they not included tests for. Um, So the overall coverage number is interesting and then I can see okay there's some parts of the code which are not tested but maybe they're like Mm -hmm. scripts or something which is not as important like it only gets run once you know like a build script for example. I don't care about test coverage on that but um Mm -hmm. if somebody submits a um a new feature and i can see that a lot of it isn't actually covered then you know i'd look at asking them to add more tests and actually Mm -hmm. specifying which behaviors i want them to test um or just being aware of that so that if i do merge it in i can add some tests later
0: yeah that makes sense I'm curious, uh, since you're t- we're talking about testing, do you uh, use any of the Python dependency management tooling, um, like Pipenv or Poetry, or any of those?
1: Not really. No, um, the I use f- f- mostly do maintenance of packages, so um, mm-hmm. and my environment is. Is a bit of a mess as well. It's not a mess. It's just a bit complicated. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, Cause I do, do work on C Python and uh, actually recently I was doing some work on PyPy as well. So, um, mm. you know, I've got like, I don't know how many versions of Python installed on my machine, but it's a lot. Yeah. Um, like every, every version you could possibly think of and then different versions mm-hmm. of that as well. Um, so yeah, I found those tools of have, discourse, have A lot of issues that weren't really worthwhile i tried pyenv uh i found that was really helpful for automating building python from source um Mm. like if i wanted to test a package with debug python in debugging mode which you have to compile Mm -hmm. it from source to get that um pyenv was kind of helpful uh i did look at poetry but um yeah i'm still fairly happy with the requirements um Uh, text files and actually on one project um, one of my colleagues introduced pip compile Um, so you give it a requirements.in file um, and then it basically you specify the high level requirements the ones you really care about um, Mm -hmm. and then what versions of those then it resolves those down to a full requirements.txt by kind of doing a pip freeze but it's like instead of doing pip freeze and then saving that as a requirements.txt, you create a lot of issues for yourself because you've just pinned everything. And then if there's a patch or a bug fix or even like a security fix for one of those packages, um, you don't know whether it was one that you specifically wanted or if it was a dependency of a dependency. Uh, So Mm -hmm. pip pip compile was actually pretty, very simple. I like it to be simple. Nice, Um, me too
0: yeah totally gotcha yeah I, I like the poetry's idea and i i'm not just seeing any people who use it but i i've had problems with lock files doing weird things especially in git and you know depending on the repo you're working with you have to use them but they it can take a lot of work to to iron out those little issues and i want to work on my code i don't want to work on uh a lock file, so to speak.
1: Yeah. So. Um. Yeah, I've enjoyed using Flip <laughs> for packages that I maintain.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, just to get the build and the publish, um, those two things nice and simple. Especially there was quite a lot of changes to setup tools. Um, over the last couple of years, they've really kind of gone and rewritten a lot of that. Um, yeah. and discouraging the direct use of setup. Py. Um, hmm. So and I kind of learned, learnt flit and thought oh, I'll just stick with this. This is a I've got two commands, uh Flip build and yep. Flip Publish, and that does what I want. So
0: um yeah. Nice. That does sound really easy. So let's see. Could you tell us a little bit about uh how you came to write a book about Python internals?
1: Yeah. Um So I guess in my programming journey, I got to a point where I was interested in compilers. um, Mm -hmm. And Python was the language that I knew uh, the most about. So I thought it made sense if I'm going to learn about a compiler to start with Python. Um, And it started off as a blog post for Mm realpython.com. So I did a a pretty long blog post, which was a sort of early version of the book, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, where I wanted to look at, um, I guess the grammar and like how it compiles the code and, um, yeah. what are the different data structures it uses and, um, and then cover some different topics and stuff like that. Um, and that was mm-hmm. more really my own journey of wanting to understand how it worked. And, um, when I learned something, it, um, it's nice to write about it at the same time because it yep. helps you reinforce like what you're learning and if you can teach it to somebody then you've you've if you can simplify it and teach it to somebody as well Mm -hmm. um then that I think that's a really good tool for learning something yourself it's not for everybody but I I really enjoy doing that um so yeah learning I guess how it worked and then um trying to think of ways to describe that and make it simpler to understand Mm -hmm. um and then I was at PyCon US in Cleveland. So that would have been like 2018, maybe. Um,
0: Mm Yeah, sounds about right.
1: Yeah. And I was chatting to Dan Bader, who runs um, realpython.com, about the blog post. And we started chatting about it maybe being a book. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, agreed on that. uh, uh, And then kind of got to work, basically. Um, Started reading the blog post as a draft. And then bas rewrote the whole thing, but um yeah yeah it took it took a few months uh well, it took about half a year, I think, for me to do it um yeah. and I really tried to tackle a chapter at a time and make each chapter kind of atomic um so that yeah. it's a specific concept that you could learn um and I really wanted it to be um not do some of the things I don't like in programming books, which is too many code printouts um like sometimes you buy like a 900 page book learn this language and like I feel like 400 pages of it is just like code (laughs) and like I can download code from the internet give me a link and yeah uh, I don't need I don't need pages and pages of printouts um so I've really tried not to do that or if I did then I would comment out the bits that weren't important and just put like snippets of code so Um, Mm -hmm. you know, if I spent, it's better than spending two paragraphs trying to explain a block of code, then you could just put the code in the page. Um, but yeah, a lot of the time is actually just drawing diagrams. So I felt that was important to, um, do as many illustrations as I could to, to draw out these concepts. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the other thing was you're learning about a tool that someone's written rather than learning a language or learning how to do something. So, um, Mm -hmm. something I tried to work on early on in the book is that actually pretty much the first page in the first chapter is you doing stuff. Um, it's like, okay, let's download the source code. Let's compile it. Let's modify Mm -hmm. it. So in the book, um, you'll learn how to modify the Python syntax to add a new operator. Um, Hmm. so, and then you compile that into the language, you add functionality for it. um, So. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of hands-on stuff in the book as yeah. well cuz that's that's super important.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. You want the you want the reader to be engaged. Yeah. So are any are there any lessons you learned while you were wor- working on this book?
1: Um yeah, I realized how much I didn't know about async. Um mm that was one I, I was dreading that chapter because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> i was like yeah i kind of understand there's like keywords but i don't really know how it works and sometimes mm-hmm. you see code written by people who i figure really understand async like they were playing with it back when you know it was like coroutine decorators and stuff yep. in python 3.4 um and, and up i think well, i can't what version that was um but I wasn't really following mm-hmm. it at that time. Yeah. And I'd look at the code and not really understand what was happening. And, th- you know, just sprinkling a bit of async and await on your code and expecting it to run faster and it not running any faster. Um, mm-hmm. And not really knowing why as well. Like, I didn't really get that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I definitely learned a lot more about coroutines um, and yeah. and how that worked. Cool. Um, so that was fun and yeah um learned a lot more about c uh than i knew previously is pretty pretty hardcore use of c throughout c python as you'd expect maybe for a project that that's that's that yeah. complicated um but i i felt like i'd spent more time doing c++ where you've got the standard data types and you've got classes and inheritance and um um sort of more a- abstract methods and stuff like that and in, in C you don't have any of that. Um mm-hmm. so yeah I definitely had to learn a lot of C to to do it. Um and then from writing the book as well like I constantly questioned myself when I was writing it um mm-hmm. and figured that I'd get to the end and then share it around with some core developers and they'd come back and be like all of this is wrong (laughs) um (laughs) or just point out like all the mistakes um there definitely were like hundreds of corrections i had to make um a lot of it's mostly just my bad uh bad grammar but um yeah Mm -hmm. there were some technical errors there is a technical error that's still in the book actually um Hmm. uh where i explain how what an integer is um uh okay. it's a sequence of numbers it's an array of numbers which is true but i didn't realize that the base uh is actually different um i assumed hmm. that it was base 10 but it isn't at all um it's like base two to the third i can't remember. something it's really something really odd um hmm. i didn't so the, know that either but there's a mistake in the book so i never actually <laughs> Norata. Uh no one's ever complained to me but i know it's there um
0: yeah but, i know i I've done that many a time.
1: <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I, what about you? What do you learn by writing yours?
0: Uh, for me, I mean, part of the reason I choose the book topics I choose is I want to know more about that particular topic. So um, like uh, the pillow package, I've used that thing off and on for many years. But there's a lot of part, a lot of moving parts behind the scenes that I don't really know much about, or just functions i never used at all. And so I was like, well, why don't we just kind of have some documentation about how to use Pillow to do image processing in different ways? So that's, you know, that's why, that's why I learned it and why I wanted to write a book about it was that, you know, there's millions of people who download the package, they don't even know what it's doing because it's usually wrapped by another package. And I'm like, you guys could learn the real power here and start using it more effectively mm. or hopefully anyway, but yeah, you you also learn uh time management as a you know how do you break up a chapter and get it done in a week or two weeks, or what you know whatever your time limit is, so yeah
1: yeah, I went through a lot of paper as well um I'd print off each chapter as I finished it and then lay it out on the floor um just to actually just look at it visually and try and picture Mm. like how the structure of it is and then go through like two or three passes with a pencil um Mm. so yeah I went through uh sadly went through a lot of paper (laughs) um Mm. and then shredded it all and composted it so it was maybe it's going back (laughs) to the earth but um Yeah. yeah it's still Still not ideal. I spoke to Luciano uh, Ramalho, who um, wrote the Fluent Python um, mm-hmm. uh, books. So he said he does a similar thing. He pins, he prints the chapter out and pins it on the wall, um, hmm. and then looks at it on the wall and reviews it that way. So, yeah, it's helpful to do
0: that. I think I rely too much on on uh, electronic tooling to do my reviews, but that's a that's probably a good way to do it. Mm-hmm. Of course, finding a room where I can actually pin stuff up, where people aren't going to mess with it, that that'd be probably my issue.
1: Yeah, and when you're putting it on the floor, finding a room that doesn't have a draft—that was um. Yes. <laughs> I learned that one the hard way. I did it once, and someone opened the back door, and it all just blew away. And I was like, "Oh, thanks."
0: <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, that would not be a fun thing. I think even. Even if I went in my basement, I'd probably find some way for the heater to come on and blow my pages away. So, (laughs) so anyway, um, let's see. What other which projects are you working on now that you're done with a book? And I don't really know what you're working on now. Is there Anything you can share?
1: Yeah. um, So I did my master's last year. um, Oh, congrats! So yeah, I finished that in July I think uh, last year. So. And I started my PhD in October. Um, So for the next uh, few years, then I'm working on my PhD. um, And yeah, I work full-time at Microsoft as a principal cloud advocate. Um, Mm. And there's actually quite a lot of overlaps between the PhD and my job, which is the only reason I agreed to do the PhD (laughs) or decided to do it. Um, Because I thought if it's adjacent to what I'm doing, then I don't have to constantly context switch to mm-hmm. think about publishing a paper. So um, a lot of the stuff I'm doing at the moment is about the performance of Python or like s- trying to look at um, or analyze that um, okay. in different applications, whether that's mm. benchmarks or profilers or, um, trying to look at different implementations as well so I um, mm-hmm. a few years ago worked on Pidgin, um which was a, a, a basically a JIT compiler for Python that um, okay. Brett cannon and Dino veland originally wrote um, and and then kind of left there and then I picked it up and rewrote it and um, mm-hmm. learned a lot doing that project um, so I could make certain benchmarks, run a lot faster than C Python. um hmm. and other ones would run slower um so i kind of mm. learned okay it wasn't it was a bunch of experiments about like ideas mm. that i thought might be interesting um rather than a viable um alternative to python um, yeah like I, I i still believe quite passionately that i think the way to Uh, improve the python situation is to improve c python rather than trying to come up with lots of alternative Mm
0: -hmm.
1: compilers and interpreters and stuff like that i think PyPy is brilliant and it's that's the mature the most mature one um Mm -hmm. but there's you know there's a lot of challenges with um compatibility and integration with c libraries and stuff so it, it, it it's great for some things and and for other applications it just doesn't work um and then mm-hmm. for NumPy, you've got things like Number, which is mm-hmm. like a pluggable JIT for C Python. I think that's a really nice idea, um, and yeah. it basically just instantly adds performance to a project that uses NumPy um, without really very much code change. Um, mm. So I nice. I like that approach because that's a good balance between gaining performance without having to make lots of code changes like Mm -hmm. if you wanted to use scython you need to type most of your code at least the bits that are performance critical Um, and you have to add all Mm. this tool chain in there and and there's a there's a lot of it's not as easy as uh it's made out to be i think introducing scython but um so yeah my phd is looking looking at that Um, um that's neat yeah looking at the the faster c python um team and what they're doing and um so some of the blog posts i've been doing recently i did one about the, the this new JIT that's coming in python mm-hmm. 313 um that's part of my research as well so i'm interested in cool. what they're building and what performance difference it's gonna make how it works and trying to explain it um mm-hmm. and then i think once i finish uh, this then i'll Maybe do a second version of the book. So,
0: oh yeah, I was going to. I was wondering what would happen since they've been diverging more and more from the kernel, basically. Or I, I don't even really know the terminology, but what you wrote about has changed quite a bit. I believe in the last couple of versions of Python, correct?
1: Yeah, a huge amount. Yeah, um, yeah, like the actual interpreter that runs the code mm-hmm. hadn't ch- hadn't changed. Whole lot for mm-hmm. like ten plus years, yeah. um, and um changed pretty drastically in the last year and a half.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: like yep. it's unrecognizable from the original.
0: Isn't that the way it goes? <laughs> yeah.
1: So uh, yeah, I'm glad I waited because people have asked me to do a second version of the book for Python 3.11 and 3.12. Mm-hmm. And, um. And now I know how much three thirteen and three fourteen are going to be different. Uh, I, just, yeah. I think it makes more sense to do a version for three fourteen um, yeah. and really kind of cover some of these new ideas in depth. Um,
0: yeah,
1: like the JIT for example is what was proposed in December uh, on Christmas mm. Day. Actually, <laughs> uh, so what was submitted <laughs> on Christmas Day um, is a is a is a cornerstone of a of a JIT project it's definitely mm-hmm. the the first step in um in that change to see python and uh, that's going to evolve very mm-hmm. quickly once that first part gets uh put in place
0: nice so in doing your research on, on uh, python performance have you found a particular profiler that's better than the rest or maybe two profilers that are better than the rest
1: yeah yeah, there are a lot of them. Um I like it depends on what I'm profiling as well. Um and it yeah. depends on whether I need C C plus plus profiling plus Python profiling. Um mm, or if thatcha. I just need the Python the Python pieces. Um mm. I if it's just Python I need, I typically use um uh one of the simple ones like C profile or something. Um and okay. then Snake as a tool. Mm-hmm. Um, if I just want something uh simple um and to understand the stack and where time is taken up. Um actually I was just looking at a couple of weeks ago, looking at Django has a performance test suite. Um mm-hmm. and what well, I wanted to understand how that worked and what are they measuring and are there any mm-hmm. like good use cases I can look at to to simulate performance changes in python 312 to 313 um and yeah i was just using c profile for for that it's fine uh for lower level profiling i typically use austin um Hmm. or i've also looked at i've used scalene quite a bit as well um okay so yeah there's there's two types of profilers i guess there's like sampling profilers and tracing profilers Uh, Mm -hmm. a sampler will basically query the operating system there's different ways of doing it but it kind of polls the operating system to see what it's doing every Mm -hmm. few milliseconds or nanoseconds um and then it gives you a representative graph of where the time was spent um the benefit of that is it's um has less overhead so if you run things through a a a tracing profiler then that will run a custom bit of code before a function is run and once it's finished um Mm -hmm. to basically start and stop a timer um those are very accurate like C Profile does that um those are very accurate but they add a whole bunch of overhead to your code um and in Mm -hmm. some applications it's just not possible to profile them uh, because it just becomes too slow so you want to use a sampler um Okay. Uh, and Austin is a good good one to do that.
0: Huh. I haven't tried Austin before. I'll have to check that out.
1: Yeah. It's hard to use on Mac. That's the only issue. Um, okay. Yeah. It's easy on Windows and easy on Linux. Um, mm. Mac has a whole bunch of security uh, constraints. Um, hmm. You can't just sample other processes and manipulate them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's pretty locked down, so,
0: yeah. <laughs> I think it sounds like a good tip. I'll keep that in mind. Um, are you able to tell us anything about what, any Python projects you're working on at uh, Microsoft?
1: Yeah, um, and probably a couple of things. At the moment, we're doing a lot of work on uh, AI, which probably be unsurprising to your listeners, because um, mm-hmm. it's the <laughs> topic du jour, I guess. Um, yeah. So, one project is a it's a chat, uh, rag application. So, rag is read augmented generation. So, when you use mm-hmm. um, when you use gener- generative AI and you ask a, a question, um, mm-hmm. then rag, a uh, simple version of rag is basically it's appends to the bottom of your question some context and data which could be fetched from a database or hmm. that are searched from somewhere. So okay. um, something we're, we're looking at a lot is, um, I guess, different search approaches. Um, mm-hmm. So this is where factor databases come in play. Um, so hmm. when you do a search instead of doing like a traditional search um, where you just search for the word or like the word maybe with a couple of typos, um, mm-hmm. it looks at words which are similar or sentences which are similar within a, a document or a pool of documents or a database um, mm-hmm. so yeah a vector a vector search is is a way of doing that um, mm-hmm. is basically because when you use a chat app you you don't want to use it like a command line tool you don't want to mm-hmm. have to put things in quotes like if you do it if you do a web search do you it's keyword search really that you're doing Um, and it ignores a lot of the other things. Like if you put in and the, like, it it doesn't really include those. It looks at, okay, these are the keywords that are most important. And that's why you don't typically use a web search and type in full sentences. You just Mm -hmm. type in a bunch of keywords. Um, whereas chat apps are quite different because you would write out sentences or complete paragraphs explaining what you want. so the way that it kind of does the search and approaches that has to be quite different. Um, so yeah, we're mm-hmm. uh, working on that at the moment. We've got this um, sample project that uses Flask. Um, it uses the OpenAI Python SDK. Um, it uses mm-hmm. uh, TikToken, which is a uh, Python mm-hmm. tokenizer for 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 use with OpenAI's um, APIs. Mm-hmm um and we're using um some different vector search tools uh, as well so yeah that's something mm-hmm. doing a lot uh, at work at the moment so um yeah there's a f- there's nice. quite a few people working on that project and a lot of customers have picked it up because it's open source um and they can see how it works we designed it as a template that they can take that give it their own data. Um, Mm -hmm. Like the example we give is here's a bunch of PDFs of like company policies on uh, things and like product brochures for a fictional company. And then in the chat app, you can ask it, Oh, does this, uh, does this product have this and does it do this thing? And, um, and you can ask it questions about the policies Uh, and it will basically do that kind of vector and semantic search on the, on the documents Mm-hmm. Um, and then the chat app will give you a, uh, like a full response based on that data.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Is this just something that you like run in a web, kind of like in a web framework since you mentioned Flask?
1: Yeah. Um, so Flask, Flask kind of runs the, um, the, the front end really. So, okay. well, the front end is JavaScript, but like it, it runs the, I guess the capturing of the question from the user and processing and streaming back the response from the, uh, the backend. Um, and then the, the Flask app also does, um, when you give it your own documents and your own data, you have to chunk those up. You can't just Mm. upload a a PDF. We'll we'll probably get there in the technology. I reckon within six months where you can just give it PDFs and stuff. But at the moment you have to, um, you give it a series of tokens and chunks. Um, so you have to basically read the text and um, chunk it up and stuff like that. So yeah, that's been really interesting to learn um, hmm. cool. all this new technology and how it works. And Python is basically the, it's the, the choice for like all of this AI stuff. Um for machine learning it was already in data science, but um the generative AI technology that's coming out, like people are using Python. I'd say like eighty percent um of nice. adoption is Python. So it's this whole new area. Um like there's a project called Langchain, which is r- mm-hmm. really popular. Um, but it didn't exist until like a year ago, I think. <laughs> um yeah. To, yeah, you can kind of glue all these technologies together. It's really cool.
0: It is cool. I'm, I'm excited and a little, a little scared to see what comes out of this. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm excited when you, when I use the technology and see like what you can do with it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I want you to kind of get through a lot of the jargon and the hype and actually see, okay, this, this component does this. This component does that. Um. Mm-hmm. And it it also makes sense, like what things you shouldn't be using it for. Um, so my concerns are mostly just hearing, you know, people online and stuff saying, "Oh, we could try using it for this." Um, yeah. And you uh, once you kind of understand the technology a bit, you you think, "No, that's not a good, that's a terrible <laughs> idea." <laughs> like it's not going to give you reliable. Or like it's just it's just not it doesn't have any cognitive ability like it can't people give it these really uh, like brain teaser kind of questions as a mm-hmm. way of measuring how good it is and i i don't understand why you'd use that as a metric um because it mm. has no cognitive processing like it's yes yeah. it, it looks at text and understands the relationship between words mm-hmm. and between languages and stuff like that um yeah. Like, it, it can't take a problem, a logic problem, and solve a logic problem. Um, and we have yeah. other tools that can do that. So it's not like yeah. we haven't solved that problem before. Um, so, yeah, I don't
0: know. <laughs> yeah, people like to do... They always want to test the software and see what, see what holes they can find. Yeah. So... Lately, in my podcast, I like to kind of throw out a random question that's like completely different from the previous ones. So let's yeah. uh, talk about your project where you created a uh, VS Code pets. How did that come about?
1: Um. Yeah, I d- I just wanted to make something fun for VS Code, and okay. uh, I saw this uh, tutorial on how to make an extension, and I thought, oh, it'd be nice to have like a, just a little pet that wanders around. And just mm-hmm. adds a bit of character to the, when you've got like the window open, um, mm-hmm. you know, you've got text and you've got like, your Git get stuff happening on the left-hand side and you've got, yeah, you know, it's all very serious. And I was thought, be nice to have a bit of character <laughs> and have a little animal just strolling around, minding its own mm-hmm. business in the corner. Um, so yeah, I decided to put a very simple kind of extension together, um, mm-hmm with a cat and a dog um and then i think it might have been tiktok or youtube i'm not really sure which one it was but some people mm-hmm. f- like found it like tiktok influencers maybe and made a video about it and then hmm. um it, yeah it just kept growing and growing and growing and it's got like millions of downloads now nice. <laughs> um so I think it's got like 800,000 users hmm. um and people are asking for new things all the time it's it's a funny uh, project because it's all open source it's on github um mm-hmm. I, it's got like I don't know like 10 maybe 12 different animals it's um it's hmm. got like it's been translated into like 15 different languages um nice so like the menus and the commands and the names of the animals and stuff are available in all these different languages and stuff um mm-hmm. but I really kind of use it as a as a place to try and kind of push open source um mm-hmm. so trying to make it as easy as possible for people to to contribute um and I did not expect it to be popular at all and it's yeah <laughs> I've always found that with open source like the things that you make that you think oh, people going to love this like fall flat Mm -hmm. and the stuff the stuff that you just do on a whim um you know (laughs) it can end up being really really popular you know i don't understand the connection but
0: are there any neat stuff are there any new features planned for that project you can share
1: yeah um people definitely want a so i guess there's with cats and dogs in particular um people want them to look as close as possible to their pet um Mm. so kind of done variances of colors shading of the fur and stuff like that but I feel Mm. like people would like a editor or like a or not like an editor but like a you know customize patterns of the fur and the Mm -hmm. the shades and stuff like that um and I've thought about how to do it but it it, it's actually technically quite a hard challenge um, mm-hmm. to essentially build that in JavaScript, and then it has to like create all the animations and the and then produce a GIF. Um, mm-hmm. Like it would be easy to do in Pillow, <laughs> um, <laughs> like or well, easier uh, than it would be in JavaScript. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. That that that's. Probably the the next one. Um, people, the the backlog for it is um, is quite crazy. People ask for all sorts of weird and wonderful things. Everyone's I'm always trying. asking for the pets to be able to jump out of the box and like run around the code and stuff. Um, which I just got a pinned issue saying this isn't possible for a bunch of reasons. Uh, <laughs> actually, most of which have to do with security, like the the VS Code. Uh, extension mm-hmm. team you know i can ask them questions sometimes um they don't want people to make extensions that can manipulate and overrun vs code um because
0: mm-hmm.
1: you want to install an extension that does something and you trust that it's not just going to go and muck yeah. around with everything else
0: Um yeah <laughs> that's fun all right. Well, I think we've reached the end of my show. I wanted to thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to, to be on the Python show, and um, maybe you can come again sometime. After yeah, no pressure. Yeah, great. Well, we're going to sign off. Be sure to check out Anthony's book, even and uh, his Real Python uh, contributions, because there's some really good articles out there. And uh, we'll see you next time.
1: Follow on Apple Podcasts. Mike Driscoll, The Python Show.